Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 President Biden lands in Japan for the G7 summit amid concerns for China's growing aggression It is the CCP which is upending the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. As McCarthy and the president come close to a debt ceiling agreement, Democrats urge the White House not to deal. The best way to stop insolvency is to get your account receivables higher than your account payables. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do with this debt ceiling bill. Disney cancels a $1 billion development in Florida. The company which had been building that new campus was now scrapping those plans. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories for Friday, May 19th. I'm Tasha Stevens. On Thursday, President Biden landed in Japan to attend the G7 summit while vowing that the U.S. was ready to lead on the world stage. However, former U.N. Ambassador John Bolton believes that Biden's policies have actually made America much weaker. I think it's with a weak hand by his own design. He, he doesn't have a strategic uh, idea about how to handle the threats the United States faces in the world. I think the lack of strategy in Ukraine after 15 months of uh, conflict now speaks for itself. Uh, one of the subjects of this G7 meeting is going to be how to deal with China. He doesn't have a strategy for that. Uh, and I think that uh, his, his general weakness is, is very much in evidence. There's simply no doubt about it. Due to the ongoing debt ceiling talks, there were concerns that the president would have been unable to make the trip. In fact, his team has scrubbed the latter half of his trip in order for the president to return to Washington by Wednesday in order to cement a deal. Meanwhile, one of the key points that the G7 hopes to discuss is the ongoing aggressive posturing from China through their practices of economic coercion. Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin joins the Salem Radio Network and says that when it comes to dealing with aggression from the CCP, the G7 needs to listen to what Xi Jinping is saying. No doubt he would prefer to absorb Taiwan via political warfare rather than actual warfare. Yet he repeatedly is telling us that he is prepared to use force if necessary to achieve his life's ambition. And what these people need to do is pay attention to what Xi Jinping says when he talks not to the Davos crowd, but when he talks to his own party membership. And on that point, he has been crystal clear that he is prepared to use force if necessary, particularly when, as I believe will happen, He realizes that achieving that objective, that objective of reunification of Taiwan with the mainland, cannot be achieved via political warfare because the DPP is going to win the election in Taiwan in January of 2024. Gallagher does not agree with the way the Biden administration is choosing to engage with Beijing. So if Ukraine has taught us anything, it is that we should listen to dictators when they tell us in plain language what they intend to do. And if we ignore that, because we graft our own Western sensibilities onto Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, and we do mirror imaging, we do so at our own peril. 
The risks of an invasion are increasing. The fact that the administration is now doubling down on an economic engagement strategy with China represents the triumph of delusion over bitter experience. The Wisconsin congressman simply doesn't believe that China will be a transparent partner in any economic relationship with the U.S. I have no problem if we want to set up what's called a crisis communication channel. I think it makes a lot of sense so that our generals can talk to their generals and there's no miscalculation that might lead to war. What I disagree with the administration on is this idea that economic engagement or cooperation on a discrete set of issues, usually they talk about climate change, or they talk about nonproliferation, or they talk about stability on the Korean Peninsula, that somehow, A, the Chinese Communist Party is going to be a productive collaborator on those issues, and B, that that cooperation will reduce tension in the overall relationship. Gallagher goes on to say that the way the Biden administration is dealing with China makes America look weak. If you don't deal with the main thing, which is the CCP's expanding aggression, which is particularly focused on Taiwan right now, and as I've told you many times in some meaningful sense, the invasion of Taiwan has already begun in cyberspace and in the information space. If you don't deal with that issue, and if you're not clear about that issue, then I'm not sure how the relationship improves. Moreover, we need to remember that we are not the aggressor in this relationship. It is the CCP which is upending the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. It is the CCP which flew a spy balloon over the continental United States. And despite that, and now we have reports that the State Department tried to de-emphasize that, tried to slow roll information on that, is still... Uh, precluding Congress from getting a fulsome assessment of what happened so as not to endanger these bilateral meetings, I actually think that just makes us look, makes us look weak. Uh, the CCP reads that as an invitation for more aggression. It's a paradox of Marxist-Leninist regimes that the more secure they are, the more aggressive they become. Despite differing relationships with China, G7 allies realize the importance of their collective strength. Because of that, there's a good chance that the G7 could find some consensus in shoring up supply chains and lessening dependence on China for the critical minerals needed to manufacture semiconductors and other technological products. A whistleblower report compiled by a GOP-led House panel asserts that the FBI used the January 6 incident to mislead on domestic terrorism spikes. Daybreak Insider's Edwin Mora has more on this developing story. A new report unveiled by the GOP-led House Judiciary Committee said whistleblower testimony reveals the FBI is categorizing cases stemming from the Capitol riot of January 6, 2021 in such a way as to mislead about and artificially inflate the rise in domestic terrorism in the United States. The GOP report said that, quote, whistleblowers assert that the FBI pressure agents to reclassify cases as domestic violent extremism, or DVE, and even manufacture DVE cases where they may not otherwise exist. Edwin Mora, Capitol Hill. There seems to be some positive bipartisan movement towards resolving the ongoing standoff over the debt ceiling, with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy telegraphing that a deal may be within reach, even as the president heads to Japan for the G7 summit. 
Speaker Kevin McCarthy says that while nothing is concrete, he feels that negotiations are on the right path. I'm not confident about anything in there. I, I just believe where we were a week ago and where we are today is a much better place because we've got the right people in the room discussing it in a very professional manner with all the knowledge and all the background from all the different leaders of what they want. I know and I can see where a deal can come together. Reporter Lisa Macero lays out what many economic experts believe may happen should the U.S. default on the debt. A debt default, something of this magnitude has not happened before in the United States. It would certainly lead to higher borrowing rates for the government and higher borrowing rates for everyday Americans on the loans they need for mortgages, car loans. Any of these kinds of loans would almost certainly face higher interest and borrowing rates if the nation's credit were to come into question. So Congress, the president, the U.S. government is working quickly to resolve this standoff and try not to get to that kind of crisis. However, even as Speaker McCarthy hinted at significant progress in the talks, Democratic lawmakers are raising alarms, saying that the president is conceding too much and is giving Republicans too much leverage. Progressive Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont blasted Republicans and urged the White House to invoke the 14th Amendment. And they have made it clear that they are prepared to hold our entire economy hostage unless the president gives in to all of their demands. And this is something we cannot accept. In my view, and the view of all of us up here, the president has the authority and the responsibility under the Constitution to make sure that we continue to pay our bills. In fact, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution clearly states, quote, it's not ambiguous, the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned, end quote. Is this a perfect solution? Is imposing the 14th Amendment a perfect solution? No, it is not. But using the 14th Amendment would allow the United States to continue to pay its bills on time and without delay, prevent an economic catastrophe, and prevent devastating cuts to some of the most vulnerable people in this country. It should be exercised if necessary. One of the sticking points for many Democrats is that Republicans seek to toughen the work requirements in their debt limit legislation. Meanwhile, McCarthy and others in his party have refrained from publicly drawing further red lines as tensions on both sides escalate ahead of the looming default deadline, which the Treasury Department has warned could arrive as soon as June 1st. Republican Representative Cory Mills of Florida says that despite criticisms from his Democratic colleagues, the debt ceiling bill Republicans have put forward is one of the best in recent history. You know, you have Joe Biden who is showing such hypocrisy. He voted for work requirements, but he's also the same guy who voted to actually destroy Medicare and Medicaid on not just three, but four different occasions. You know, anything the Democrats accuse Republicans of is probably because they've actually done it themselves. But when it comes to the clawbacks, yes, this is one of the best debt ceiling increases that we can look at. 1.47 trillion increase. It's a one-year extension. It allows to claw back 1.2 trillion in unused funds to include the $500 billion that Joe Biden circumvented legislators on when he signed the executive orders for the tuition bailout. Mills lays out some of the key points in the Republican debt ceiling bill. And so this is allowing us to use COVID money. This is allowing us to use the excess money that was put aside in some of the IRA funding. And this really gets us to a point where we can go back to fiscal 
year 22 and look at a 1% increase that over time will give us a $4.8 trillion clawback. Now, the bigger part of this, though, Maria, as you know, is HR1, where we would actually be pushing to try and go ahead and get our domestic energy production up. We would look at pushing the RAINS Act, which would stop some of the overregulation on businesses, which would allow GDP growth. So this is actually a strategy to not only not default on our nation's debt, but also get us to a position where our GDP can grow and exceed, which as a former business owner, I can tell you, the best way to stop insolvency is to get your account receivables higher than your account payables. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do with this debt ceiling bill. The challenge facing McCarthy and his leadership team is to find a compromise that can win the support of the president and congressional Democrats without alienating conservatives in his own conference. There are some new details about complications from an illness involving the longtime California Senator Dianne Feinstein. More on the ongoing concerns over Feinstein's health from Daybreak Insider's Lisa Dwyer. The office of Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein says she is suffering from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, a complication from the shingles virus that can paralyze part of the face. Feinstein's office said she contracted encephalitis while recovering from the shingles virus earlier this year. Feinstein, who is 89 years old, had not previously disclosed those medical details, though she said in a statement last week that she had suffered complications. The longtime California senator returned from a more than two-month absence on May 10th. Feinstein has faced questions for several years about her declining health and her mental acuity. In February, Feinstein said she would not run for re-election in 2024. I'm Lisa Dwyer. Disney announces that it is canceling plans to build an employee campus worth about $1 billion, which would have relocated thousands of California-based employees to the state of Florida. Many in the media were quick to paint this as yet another salvo in the ongoing feud between the House of Mouse and Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis. The battle between DeSantis and Disney started due to the media giant's response to Florida's parental rights legislation, a law that critics erroneously dubbed the Don't Say Gay Law. The legislation simply forbids instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity from kindergarten through third grade. Responding to Disney's condemnation of the law, DeSantis signed a law that allows him to take control of the company's longstanding special tax district, formerly known as Reedy Creek. However, some like Yahoo Finance's Ali Canal says that while Disney is frustrated with their current relationship with Florida state government, there have been plans to pull the plug on the employee campus for some time. Disney didn't specifically say this was because of the governor, but you can probably surmise that the DeSantis drama played a significant role. According to an internal memo obtained by Yahoo Finance, Josh Demaro, who chairs the Parks, Products and Experience Division at Disney, told employees today that the company would had been building that new campus in the Lake Nona region of Orlando, was now scrapping those plans. So no more construction on that campus and no more relocation requirements since about 2,000 California-based employees were going to have to relocate to Florida. Tomorrow, saying, quote, given the considerable changes that have occurred since the announcement of this project, including new leadership and changing business conditions, we have decided not to move forward. Now, the relocation plans were first announced in July 2021 under then-CEO Bob Chapek, with the employee campus originally set to open between 2022 and 2023 that was eventually delayed to 2026. And now, of course, that is no longer. Uh, DeMauro saying that Disney still has plans to invest $17 billion and create 13,000 jobs over the next 10 years. In Orlando, he said Disney still has plans to do that. The office of Governor DeSantis was asked about Disney shutting down the employee campus 
campus. And while they did not immediately respond, DeSantis's camp has previously stated that Disney's moves showcase a desperate attempt to maintain their special privileges and ignore the will of Floridians as expressed through their duly elected representatives. Home sales and prices are down. Daybreak Insider's Rita Foley takes a look at the new numbers. Sales of existing homes fell 3.4% in April from March. More evidence that many people trying to buy homes are being held back by low inventory and higher mortgage rates. Overall, sales sank more than 23% compared with April last year. The drop was steepest in markets across the western part of the country, where sales plunged more than 30 percent from a year earlier. The typical home price was down 1.7 percent from April last year to $388,800, says the National Association of Realtors. I'm Rita Foley. While video may have killed the radio star, it seems as though electric vehicles might just kill AM radio for your car. Can AM radio and cars be saved? Congressional lawmakers are pushing automakers to keep the first-generation technology. Daybreak Insider's Wyatt Grantham Phillips tunes into the story. On Wednesday, a bipartisan group of lawmakers introduced the AM for Every Vehicle Act. The measure requires automakers to keep AM radio in new cars at no additional cost. Supporters cite public safety reasons and AM radio's critical role in emergency response. Senator Edward Markey, one of the sponsors of the act, says automakers including Tesla, BMW, and Ford have removed broadcast AM radio from their electric vehicles. Critics of the bill say mandating AM radio is unnecessary, pointing to the integrated public alerts and warning system, which can distribute safety warnings across AM, FM, internet-based, and satellite radios, and over cellular networks. Wyatt Grantham Phillips, New York. And finally, a Minnesota man may have just created the only beer-powered motorcycle in the world. Over the years, Kai Michelson has made everything from a rocket-powered toilet a jet-powered coffee pot. But his latest creation is making a different kind of buzz. Michelson has built what he believes is the world's first beer-powered motorcycle in his garage in Bloomington. Michelson says instead of a gas engine, the bike has a 14-gallon keg with a heating coil inside. So when he pours beer into the keg, the liquid heats up to 300 degrees. And when it goes off the nozzles in the back, the beer turns into superheated steam, which provides enough thrust to move the bike forward. Michelson says he hasn't taken his homemade motorcycle out on the road just yet, but he has entered it into a few local car shows where it has won first place. And while the Rocket Man, as he is nicknamed, has traded horsepower for hops power, he believes his motorcycle could reach speeds up to 150 miles per hour. Michelson plans to test his beer-powered motorcycle on a drag strip sometime soon. But after a few demonstrations, it will probably end up in the museum in his house. His bike may be more of a boozer than a cruiser, but Michelson believes his unusual invention has raised the bar. Michelson says that he invented the beer-swigging bike because he simply likes to be different. One thing about this motorcycle is definitely different, and I like to be really creative, do things that other people have never done in the past. When asked why he chose beer for fuel, Michelson says it's because he's not a beer drinker. The price of gas is <laughs> getting up there. I, I don't drink. I'm, not a, I'm a non-drinker, so I can't think of it. 
anything better than to use it for fuel. <laughs> While his invention may be in the early stages, Michelson says he's ready to take it for a spin on the open road. Well, we're right in his early stages, but we got it running, we got it built. And I think it looks pretty cool. Michelson's son, Buddy, said the motorcycle could be adapted to run on almost any beverage, including Red Bull, coffee, or tea. But they chose beer because why not? The father and son said the motorcycle will eventually be retired and have a permanent home in Michelson's at-home invention museum. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at SRNNews.com and TownHall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Tasha Stevens.